This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. You're standing on the edge of a cliff. You have finally arrived. You're there at the precipice. There's a deep valley below, a a chasm, but you're looking across to the other side and you can see opportunity. There are businesses, startups popping up. There's commerce happening. There's all kinds of companies and activity. There's opportunity for your career, for your life right on the other side, but you've got a problem. You're standing at the edge of a cliff. You're standing at the edge of a chasm. And what do you see when you look down? You see deep, deep below in the valley, shrouded in cloudiness, colleges, universities. You see the valley of the shadow of debt. And you see all kinds of other young people tumbling, stumbling, climbing, racing down into that valley. Some of them never come back out. Some of them stay there for four or five, six years. They wander out and they look up the cliff at the other side and say, how am I going to get up there? They try climbing. Most of them have never climbed before. They don't have the tools, the equipment. They've never tied a harness. They don't know how to get up. They're climbing. They're clambering over each other. Rocks are falling down. They just want to get to those opportunities on the other side but they're trapped in the valley of the shadow of debt. That's where Praxis comes in. We build a bridge over that valley. If you're bright and you're talented and you want that opportunity on the other side, why descend into four, five, six more years, four, five, six figures of money, opportunity cost, debt, boredom, classrooms, more of what you just got out of for the last 12 years of your life, and then hope that you find some way to get to great opportunities on the other side. Why not skip that and get there right now? Praxis is the bridge that helps you get from where you are to a fulfilling, exciting career, grabbing on to all the opportunities that are out there right now in the world more than ever with technology and the freedom that that is opened up for people in the world of business. Get there now. Take the bridge over the valley of the shadow of debt. Bypass that and get directly to a career that you love. Go to discoverpraxis.com. Check it out. Today on the blog, we have a list of six of our most recent business partners with opportunities to get into the program Go through the boot camp, start apprenticing there at $15 an hour while you apprentice. And at the end of that apprenticeship, get hired for a minimum of $40,000 a year right now. No degree, no debt, no falling down the valley and wishing you could climb back up or hoping or crossing your fingers and throwing resumes up to the top of the cliff, hoping that it somehow yields you a a lifeline. Get there right now. Discoverpraxis.com. TK Coleman. Welcome back. I am speaking to you from the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> you ruined the whole monologue by messing up the analogy. No, what I, what I actually just did was I convinced all your listeners 
that you should have chosen me and my Vin Diesel voice to be the guy to read that. Because <laughs> when, when, when you say the valley of the shadow of death, man, I got the chills. I was like, oh, man, that metaphor. I love it. So you, you, next time you do that, you got to lower the lower the voice, put a little more bass in Actually, it. It reminds me of that scene <laughs> of Bad Boys where he's like, they like come into that white dude's house and he's like, yes. is anybody there? And he's like, dude. You can't do it with so much bass in your voice. He's like, can can we borrow some sugar? <laughs> That's it, man. I can't go there, man. Fish. I can't do James Earl Jones. Valley of the Shadow of Death. What's up, man? It's good to be hey, back. Great to be uh, another Friday with TK. I'm here on the East Coast. You're over on the West Coast. Let's get into it. Let's chat a little bit. So today, I want to do something a little different. I'm going to cheat. Uh it's like if you're at the playground with some kids and you're like, you know, in middle school or whatever, and they're like, I challenge you to a game of basketball. And you're like, all right, let's do it. And then when you show up, you're like, oh, by the way, I brought Kevin Durant as my sub. It's totally <laughs> cheating. So I want to go through, I usually do these Ask Isaac episodes where I answer questions that people have submitted to me on uh, IsaacMorehouse.com. There's a little Ask Isaac form or sometimes <laughs> on social media. So I like to answer those, but I thought, heck, let's do it on Friday when TK's there with me because it's like bringing Kevin Durant to the basketball game. It's not even fair. Like I'm just going to let you <laughs> dominate all these questions. So are you down? I'm, I'm ready to be KD, man. I'm ready. All right. Just don't get injured and make me carry triple doubles. <laughs> so I'm a little behind on these. Uh, I hate to admit it. I think the last, yeah, I'm like, like five weeks behind. So so, 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 so really, I'm more like T.A. than K.D. <laughs> T.A.? Yeah, man, I'm like a teacher's assistant, you know, like, oh, like, you're, like you're, you're using me to get, yeah, using hey, me to need, get your I work done. I grade my work. Uh, <laughs> yeah, read all these essays. All right, here we go. So we got a question from Anonymous. Um, I recently saw, and this is from about four or five weeks ago, so it's not so recent, but I recently saw your Facebook post about tearing up at the thought of your daughters getting married. I thought it was really sweet, but I'm wondering if you feel the same way about your son too. If not, could you explain why? I thought that was kind of an interesting question. I mean, the first thought I had was like, is this one of those like gotcha questions? Like, ha, I got you. You're part of the patriarchy. You're oppressing women with your, you know, feminine, your anti-feminist views. And I don't know. I was like, is this supposed to be like a gotcha? But I'm, I'm going to take the, the principle of charitable interpretation and assume this person really wants to know. Um, before I give my answer, because it's sort of a personal question, do you have any thoughts, TK, on the differences between the way people feel? I mean, like at your wedding, it's clearly a different feeling the people in your family have about a male member of the family getting married than people in your wife's family had about a female member of the family getting married. Do you think that disparity, there's like anything to that? Is that is that bad? Is that good? Is it natural? What are your thoughts? Well, I, I completely get why the disparity exists. I suppose we can have an interesting philosophical discussion about should we change it. But when it comes to a father's relationship to his daughters in a traditional family, it's usually seen as, you know, a part of the father's job or at least a pressure that he puts upon himself to protect his daughter, to lay down his life for his daughter if he needs to. In fact, most guys I know, once they have a daughter, there's kind of like this instinct that 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 kicks in where where a guy for the first time says, OK, I know that I have the capacity to kill somebody, you know, like even the nicest guys, because there's this protective instinct, this nurturing instinct, like I got to look out for my daughter. But when it comes to guys in their relationships with their son, traditionally speaking, 
there's kind of a burden to make you like me in this regard, teach you how to fight, teach you how to protect, you know? And so I I think the relationship between a guy and his daughter is going to be different from a guy and his son, just because when it comes to his son from day one, he's trying to push him out there into the real world and survive independently. Whereas the kind of bond that he has with his daughter, it's usually revolving around, hey, I want to look out for you. I want to take care of you. And, you know, I'm sure there's some room to make sure that some of those things guys emphasize with their sons are also emphasized with their daughters and vice versa. But I totally understand it in terms of if you just talk to guys who have sons and daughters and you ask them what their goal is for them or what their role is for them, it totally makes sense why they might be inclined to cry and feel a sense of loss when their daughter is being married, whereas they may be more inclined to celebrate and be like, yeah, finally get out of here when their son is getting married. You know what I mean? Yeah, so so I'm going to give two answers to that. One, just on a very personal level, when I read the question, I was like, oh, let me think about that for a minute. Um, You know, in my case, I think the reason as I was sort of daydreaming about, you know, my kids getting married and I started, (laughs) I started to cry about my daughters in particular. Um, I think my son for one is like five and a half years older, uh, than my middle child. So I've got two daughters that are within a year and a half of each other, two years of each other. They're younger. They're six and four. He's 11. He's always been more, um, radically independent. We've always had more of a, even like, not like we don't get along, but even like when we're getting along, it's like a lot of barbs and jokes. It's more of like a, I don't know, a a tumultuous sort of guy kind of relationship. Um, and I honestly, he's one of these people that I truly, I truly think he will either end up like sleeping on a park bench or be like a billionaire uh, genius. And I don't know which because he's like, he's really bright, but he's really volatile. He's really lost in the clouds on like, you know, intellectual stuff, but like completely unaware of day to day life type things. Um, And so there are those, I go back and forth with him. And so I have this feeling with him, it's so unknown. I feel like if, if anyone is like wants to commit to a long-term relationship with him, I'll just be overjoyed because <laughs> he's like a really eccentric person who I think will be a challenge for someone to live with. I don't say that as an insult. That's that's also where he gets his greatest strength. But so I kind of have that predisposition towards him, his age, his everything. Um, whereas my daughters are both just like these little sweet girls. Like, yes, it's not like they're never like, you know, frustrated or anything like that, but there's just more of a, a sweetness and a warmth there. They just you know, they, they, they love, you know, um, coming up and giving me hugs and all this kind of stuff. And it's just a different, like, like they want me to sort of be a caretaker in a way that my son never has. Um, and so there's just a difference in the relationship, whether that's personality or what. So that's, that's why to answer uh, your question, anonymous, you know, personally, it doesn't immediately make me start crying. When I think about my son, I start crying when I imagine the possibility that he could be 30 and still trying to live with us. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, but on on another level, like, you know, sort of the, the difference, you know, I, I totally get like, you know, if there are biases or prejudices or, or structural oppression, um, you know, laws or norms trying to prevent women from doing this or that, I, I think that stuff is is awful. I'm, I'm a radical, radical individualist to the core. Um, but I don't feel that things that come very naturally to humans should be immediately discounted and we should try to train ourselves out of them. I think the opposite. So, I mean, this gets to my philosophy on education, on parenting, like 
human beings naturally want to learn. They're naturally curious. They're naturally learners. They're naturally entrepreneurial. They naturally want to be left alone to make their own decisions, to, to reap the rewards and to suffer the consequences. Those are all natural to them. Things like governments and schools and, and violence-based approaches to controlling people and all this stuff, those are unnatural. Those require constant propaganda and conditioning and even then, there's always defectors who eventually break free and they can't handle the, the, the control anymore. So when I look at the way that humans naturally are, that's kind of a guide to me, you know, just allowing their natural self-interest to, to lead them to, to, I think, better things. And I think and this is one of those things that it seems very natural. Now, maybe it's a result of cultural conditioning to, to some degree. I'm not sure. But there's something very natural. I mean, first of all, just physical differences between men and women, like men are physically stronger than women. So there's probably some biological roots or whatever to that that more protective mindset. Um, and, you know, women have babies and they're more vulnerable during that time and the babies are vulnerable. And so, you know, if someone's going to be going out into the world and making sure that the resources are there, it's easier for a man to do that while a woman is, you know, pregnant, all these things. So there are reasons why those things exist. And I think that the predisposition, I just feel on a fundamental spiritual level differently towards my daughters than my son, not better, not worse, differently, just like I do towards my sister than my brother. There's just a difference there that I can't, I, I could try to di dig into it and, and come up with a theory or an explanation. I'm sure a lot of people have. It's not an issue that I've really ever looked into a whole lot, sort of gender studies and things like that. But just from a very fundamental level, it's different in a way that feels natural. There are unnatural things like cultures or, or societies that, you know, force women to do things against their will or, or, you know, marry them off against their will or force them to wear certain things or, you know, have to indoctrinate them to repress all of their interests or whatever. Like that to me seems unnatural. But this, this feeling of when I'm watching a Pixar movie and I imagine my daughter growing up, it touches me in a different way than when I imagine my son growing up. There's a different kind of gut level response. And I think there's something very natural about that, that I don't fully understand, um, but it doesn't trouble me and I don't try to resist it. If I could add something on to that, I think these differences show up on all sides. So I think if you take a look at the way women relate to women and the way women relate to men and, and the things that women report about their own experiences so that we don't have to speak for them, that women tend to describe their experiences in a way that reveals significant differences in how they engage people of the same sex and how they engage people of a different sex. So I, I, I think it's, um, you know, it's also worth pointing out that your wife would probably respond to her son being married in a way that would be different from her daughters being married. Um, you know, like th there's a reason why we tend to say things like, mama's boy and daddy's girl. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm absolutely willing to, to say there are cultural components of that. There are components of that that probably are unhealthy, but I think there is certainly a fundamental component to that that is natural and probably beneficial. I think we should always be cautious about trying to destroy emergent norms and phenomena that that we don't fully understand why they came about. Um, that's a, a great lesson in humility from from Hayek when it comes to you know social orders more generally. Things that can seem irrational just from looking at them uh, from the outside and seem like they don't make any sense often have 
they're creating order and resolving a problem that we just can't see and we don't know why they emerge. doesn't mean that I'm like some, I'm, I'm not at all a conservative fundamentally in terms of like all social norms should stay the same. Again, it, to me, it comes down to, uh, is there force involved? Is there coercion involved? Um, but I think, um, I think there's something there's something to that. Uh, okay. So, so hey man, you said anonymous. That question came from anonymous. Is that like V for vendetta? Is that like that secret? No, I wish it was from like anonymous, the hacker group. No, just uh, the person chose not to put their name uh, in, oh. the, in, the, in the form, which is you know I don't know one out of ten times that happens. I'm I'm okay with that. Um, it was probably my wife. <laughs> hey, how come, how come it, was, you, it was probably your son like yeah, would you cry probably, if i got married it was probably nl oh, um, okay the next question is from Artie duncanson and the the question in its full text is really long um with some details i i did already i already emailed you uh right before we got on this because i scanned these questions um i emailed you uh, an answer as well but the gist of the question i'll summarize Artie says, you know, he's interested in not so much reforming the school system and education, but kind of, you know, bypassing it, replacing it, um, getting kids out of that whole mindset, sort of the unschooling thing, which which we talk about a lot in the show. And um, I'm a big, a big fan of. And he said he has a basically like a, a computer program that helps people learn new languages. And he thinks this would be really beneficial to young kids who are in schools um, to help them learn new languages, but also to help them learn in different ways. But he's got this weird dilemma, like he wants to get this in front of school kids, but he's not interested in trying to like get it included in school curricula because he's not a fan of people being forced to learn things anyway, nor does he think he'd be particularly effective at that. And so I think it's an interesting dilemma that a lot of people have who say, oh, the system is really messed up, whether it's the education system or or even like the welfare system. And I want to create a private charity that does something really cool and really beneficial but it's kind of being crowded out of the market by all these government things. No one's going to come to mind when they can go just, you know, no one's going to come buy my curriculum when they can just go to school, uh, quote unquote, for free, uh, where, you know, the cost is all hidden. Um, how do I how do I help get better ideas and better learning styles out there into the world while I'm facing this monolithic monopoly on education that I disagree with? I don't want to fight from inside the system because I don't think that works. But like, what do I do? What what is your response to that kind of uh, question in general, TK? Yeah, man. Well, before you quickly adopt any strategies on what you should do or how you should do it, you got to get clear with yourself on what your why is. Like, I mean, what do you really want? I mean, are, are you trying to make sure your bills are paid while you try to start a revolution on the side? Are you trying to maximize your capacity to make a profit? Are you trying to change the system and you're prepared to uh, suffer whatever consequences or pay whatever costs come along with that? I think you have to be really clear on what you do. And a lot of times when people ask these dilemmas, it's precisely because they haven't made up their mind about what they really want to fight for. So in this kind of instance, all right, there's an opportunity to maybe make some money and popularize your particular program, and you know you could do well, you could have some success if you go one way, but you really don't believe in that way, you really don't endorse it, but the fact that you know you could succeed if you did it is torturing you a bit. And then on the other hand, you have your vision, you know what your why is, and and what you really wanna do is service to people that are taking the approach that you wanna take, but that way may not be profitable. So here's where you gotta back up and say, all right, Well, what's most important to you? Because the question might answer itself if you decide what you really care about, because 
the fact that you can succeed at something doesn't mean you should do it. I mean, you and I joke around a lot about how we could probably make a lot more money and succeed a lot further if we just didn't care about how we succeeded, right? There are tons of things you can do that you know would work. So for instance, even with Praxis, I've had a large number of people ask me to, you know, uh, about do we have anything available for, you know, like, like 11, 12, 13 year olds who are interested in entrepreneurship. And I have every reason to believe that there's a market for 11, 12, 13 year olds or parents who, who coach them and teach them to teach them things about entrepreneurship. So maybe there's some money that we can make if we enter that market. But that doesn't mean it's a good reason to do it because we have a pre-existing why. And that why places boundaries on us. That why means we, means we need to focus our energy on something specific in order to be productive and hit our target. So I think this is where you have to start. And this is the conversation that isn't being had enough. Like, what do you want? Mm. Like, do you want to just make money and popularize your program? Or do you really want to service people in the homeschooling and unschooling industry with this? Yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. It, it, it is a great, um, a very similar situation already uh, when, especially in the early stages of creating Praxis where a lot of people said, hey, why don't you get accredited? Um, and then people can get college credit for this. Now, I don't have any problem like morally or practically with someone, let's say, creating a new college and getting it accredited or creating a new kind of program that's accredited. Um, there's a market for that. If they want to sell uh, accredited classes that are, you know, um, providing value to some people and people want to buy those, like there's nothing wrong with that. I, I don't think there's any objection, but I know myself and I know that the reason I wanted to start Praxis wasn't just to create another product within the college space. That's not motivating enough for me. It might be for some people and that's not, it doesn't make you lesser if that's motivating for you, but that wasn't because I had a really cool job that I loved advancing ideas I believed in. I would not have left that for anything less than what I believe is an outright revolution. I don't like the accrediting process. I think it's corrupt and stupid and wasteful. I think it makes people chase after pieces of paper instead of learning anything. I think it makes them overlook their own value and what they need to bring to the market. It makes them overlook better ways to create signals, to tell employers that they're valuable. It gets them on a permission-based conveyor belt mindset. I don't like it. So I don't want to just make a better version of the conveyor belt that moves a little faster or has a little bit more customization. I want to bypass the entire freaking thing. And if that makes my job way, way harder, if that dramatically increases my chances of failure, I'm willing to do that because that's why I went into this thing. That was the reason. If I went in to say, look, I just want to make a lot of money doing something. Uh, again, there's no guarantee. It's not like, I don't want to pretend like, oh, if only I sold out, I would be a millionaire. I think a lot of people say that as a cop out, like as if it's really easy to make a million dollars. It's not easy to make a lot of money, even if you are willing to compromise your dreams regardless. But you know, if I would have focused entirely, if my primary goal would have been you know, earning um, the maximum market size with the maximum immediate income potential, then I think doing something like going and selling new types of courses to colleges or things like that probably would have been uh, faster. Um, you know, I mean, there's more competition in that space, but for a reason, because the market's a lot bigger. But that wasn't what I was interested in. I want to try something radical and it will or will not work. I don't know. Um, you know, we're in the midst of it right now. It's working for the people we're working with, but we're still a, a very small slice of the 20 million students who are going to college, you know, very small. Um, so to say, to know what I want to do is create a revolution. I want to create an entirely new approach. Um, that's my goal. 
list. That helps you put parameters on what kinds of activities and products you're willing to sell to do that. Now, again, I don't want to make it sound like this is morally superior to go that way. Um, you know, I've certainly had jobs before with like bagging groceries. I didn't bag groceries because I like wanted to create a revolution. It was just the best way to earn, <laughs> earn money at the time. So Artie, I would say, like TK said, decide that. What is what is your goal? Is this just to have the maximum number of young people going through your program? If so, trying to get schools on board uh, may not be a bad thing. Is your goal to get people out of the schooled mindset? Then go on the side and, and set up a website and promote this thing. Get it on the app store. You know, Get it out there. Go directly to the people, even if it's a tiny market at first, unschoolers, homeschoolers, picking off one at a time, kids who are unhappy in school. Go directly to them and bypass the whole system. Um, that's not easy and uh, not a you know huge odds of, of success, but um, if that's what you love and what you're passionate about, which I kind of get the feeling you are, I would say do that or do nothing because you won't be happy if you do something less. What, what, one last little thing to wrap it up, Artie, then we can move on to the next question. You got three things here. You got passion, probability, and priority. Most How do you think always do that, dude? It's, it's, it's the reverend in you. It's the reverend, dude. My dad's a pastor, man. I, I got the preacher in my DNA, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so re repeat those three Ps again. You've got passion, probability, and priority. Passion refers to what you like, what you're interested in, what fires you up. Probability refers to the likelihood of your success based on the data you, you have available to you. Priority refers to the cost you're willing to endure in order to procure the benefits that you want. Most people approach these kinds of questions in terms of what's my passion and what are my probabilities? The most important question, however, is what are my priorities? What are the costs I'm willing to pay to procure the benefits that I want to that I want to have? Focus on that and the other two questions will answer themselves. I like it. All right. You're going to like this question, TK. It connects everything that we love into one simple paragraph or two sentences. You ready? Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> All right. Phil Gross asks... Kobe Bryant was employed by the same employer for 20 years that hired him at 18 straight out of high school. What signal does that send? Loyalty, fear of change, a perfect employee-employer relationship, or a mixture of signals? So, so let me see if I understand the question. It's, it's, you know, here's this person who works at the same company for 20 years straight out of high school. Is that because they were just totally loyal to that company? Were they afraid to change or go to a different situation? Or was it just such a perfect mix between employee, employer? Um, what, what was going on? Can we learn anything from that? Absolutely. So I think when it comes to this particular situation, there are two key, two key observations that you have to bring to bear on Kobe and his 20 years with the Lakers. First, when Kobe Bryant was a free agent, um, I believe this was right around the time where Shaq was being shipped out to the Miami Heat after they had just had a disappointing performance in the NBA Finals. They, uh, the Clippers and a couple of other teams hotly pursued Kobe Bryant, and, and, and I believe the Clippers offered more money than the Lakers. So Kobe was fully aware of the fact that he had the opportunity to make more money by leaving L.A., and he chose, even during a time where lots of Laker fans were hating on him, you know, he chose to remain loyal to L.A. and to stay there. Second thing, uh, a, a few years ago, like two, three years ago, the Lakers signed a contract with Kobe that nearly every Lakers fan and every basketball expert agrees on that it pretty much mortgaged their opportunity to ever compete for an NBA finals again. They paid Kobe Bryant. Well, in those in those two years, not ever again. 
Right, right, right. In, the, in those two years. Absolutely. Like ba basically the amount of money they paid him for two years was so high that it meant for the next two years, we, we are highly likely to not compete for for finals, even though, you know, there was reason to believe that Kobe wanted that six ring or whatever. And, and so in both of those instances, I, I think we get a strong message from the Lakers that, number one, we are the kind of franchise that people love working for so much that even when they're offered more money from someone else, they're going to choose us. Secondly, we are the kind of franchise that takes care of our own. If you bring us championships, if you bring us business, if you put us on the map and make people love us, we're not going to forget that. And even when you're at a point where your body's broken down and you're not as useful to us as you once were in, term of winning, in terms of winning, we're still going to take care of you or at least put on a show as if we are, we're still going to take care of you. I think when you're thinking about marketing yourself to other basketball players, when you're looking at what happens when Kobe Bryant retires, how do we rebuild this franchise? How do we attract the top free agents? I think those signals are very strong and it makes someone likely to sign on with your team because you believe, hey, I'm going to be satisfied with these guys. They're going to take care of me and you know, they're, they're going to be loyal to me if I'm loyal to them. I think that's something that players like to know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say too, we'll, we'll go from Kobe's from Kobe's side and then from the Lakers side. And you can argue whether in either case this was a good or bad decision. Um, but, but let's just sort of look at maybe the incentives. I, I think, first of all, this is very different than the marketplace as a whole. So if you're like, hey, look, this dude had a 20-year career at the same company right out of high school. Um, you know, that's like, I don't think there's really any lessons to be learned from like, Maybe I can do that as a marketing guy. I mean, maybe you can, maybe you can't. But the NBA, first of all, we're dealing with something incredibly, incredibly elite. If you can play basketball at that level, your options are very, very small. It'd be like it'd be like saying, you know, you want to be the CEO of a billion dollar startup, a unicorn, so to speak. There's like 20 or 30 of them anywhere, right? So your options are really, really limited. If you want to play basketball at that level in that pay range and you have the ability, we're talking about the teams in the NBA. And then if you can go down market to overseas a little bit. So the differences between those teams are pretty small. So it's not like he stayed at one employer out of a vast marketplace of thousands of opportunities he could have been looking at. I mean, he stayed in one out of what, how many NBA teams? 30, 30, 32. Can't remember. Uh, uh, wait, uh, total teams. Oh, shucks. 30, I think. What is there? I thought it was 27 or 29. I think yeah. it's 30 now. Maybe right, I'm wrong. So I thought I was thinking 30, but anyway. Yeah, I'll Google like 30, it while you talk. Yeah, 30 or fewer. We should know this as NBA fans. So so it's not like, you know, the, the same employer doesn't mean the same thing when you're in that small of a field. Second, when you're someone as great as Kobe, who's got, a, like even in the NBA, he knows he's going to be a starter, probably an all-star, you know, championship potential. And he, his goal was always to be considered one of the greatest of all time. So that makes it even more narrow. Because you really can't become the greatest of all time. At least you couldn't in that era. You probably still can't today. Maybe you can. In small markets, teams that traditionally don't have a history of success, they don't get a ton of media. They don't. If you want to be, because in the NBA, it's more than just who, what you do on the court. It's your narrative. Because you get 
20 years max where you're actually creating the narrative on the court, but you're also doing all these press conferences, endorsements, whatever. And that defines who you are in relation to the sport and your earning potential after the game, the legacy you leave, power, money, all these things, the, the flexibility, the options, the opportunities. It's all about your narrative and your narrative is shaped not only by who you play with and how many games you win, but where you play, what market it's in, what kind of ownership, what kind of media attention do they get? And so that, that really limits it to like New York, Chicago, LA. I mean, there's really a handful, Boston, you know, there's a handful of NBA teams that can really give you that ability to create this narrative. And Kobe also, I think, valued the narrative of like being associated with one team forever. Like nobody remembers Scottie Pippen's time, you know, when he went out to Portland or nobody remembers, you know, Jordan playing for the Wizards or whatever. Like, so he wanted to get everything he could out of that. And I think there's, there's a, a rational decision there. Now, in terms of the team, as TK said, it's the golden parachute effect. You know, this is why CEOs, even when they get fired from a public company, they get a golden parachute. They get a really nice compensation package out the door. And people are like, oh, that's so unfair. They didn't deserve it. They were really bad. They got fired. How come they get rewarded? It's not for them. It's for the company. Because now they want to go hire somebody else who they want to be the face and put in hours and hours of work and stress and have all this responsibility and make big, bold decisions without being afraid of you know the results and not be really conservative and just try to keep things the same, but, but try to make changes. No one's going to do that if they're like, yeah, but the last guy that did that failed after two years and he left without anything. Well, the last guy that did that failed after two years, but he left and he still got a lot of money. So, okay, um, it's like a safety net. It's there. I actually wrote a blog post about this, that golden parachutes are better than tenure, but they're trying to accomplish the same thing. It lets you take risks without fear of losing everything. Um, they're better because you don't have to keep the CEO there. You can send him out the door with some money, whereas bad professors with tenure, uh, they bring the whole institution down in addition to protecting themselves. But So it's a similar thing. Like, hey, Kobe put in more work than anybody. He became the face. He did everything. He endured all this. He went through ups and downs with personnel, with everything, helped the Lakers in a really big way. And if they were just like, eh, you're out of here, out the door, I think that sends a signal that makes the Lakers a little bit less valuable on the margin. And remember, these decisions are made on the margin. It doesn't make them a place no one wants to play. But if you're choosing between LA and Boston, and you're a big star who wants to spend the next 10 years there, it might change the way you look at it on the margin. You might be like, hey, if I go to LA, even if I get injured, even if things go down, if I'm willing to work my butt off and try to, to be the man, they're going to take care of me. I like that. I like knowing that. I'm not expendable because I saw how they treated Kobe. That's a big difference. So great, great question. Did you figure out how many teams are in the NBA? Sorry, no, I, I didn't figure out how many teams are in the NBA, but I did find uh, a Kobe quote to substantiate your claim about how much he cares about the narrative. And then, you know, we can, we can move on after this. But this is what he said after his last game. He said, I think the most important part is we all stayed together throughout um, because we didn't run. We played through all that stuff and we got our championships and we did it the right way. It, it's clear that for him, if you go beyond passion and probability and you, and, you, and you think about things at the level of priority, it was a huge priority to Kobe Bryant that he be seen as a guy who didn't run to a to an easy or better situation when things got tough, but that he stuck it through and he built up from within. You know, yeah, so I looked it up. By the way, Google is is so creepy. I I typed how many T the letter T and it was like teams in the NBA immediately, uh, which is weird because <laughs> I probably look up the NFL more. There there are thirty teams. When Kobe came in, there might have been like twenty eight or something, but um, there are thirty teams. Uh, by the way, 
Kobe's decision to, to, you know, Kobe's focus on that narrative being like, I was there, I stuck through it my entire career, thick and thin, whatever, did it the right way. I think it would be easy to question that and be like, yeah, but you could have left like three, four years ago, whatever, maybe gotten another title or two, except his final game of his career, I think put all those questions to bed. It was such an epic, magical performance that like, I think it just sort of says, okay, there's something to be said for that. You know, it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. There's no way that means the same thing if it wasn't, you know, the the kind of situation that it was for him. All right. Um, So, so your Google search result, by the way, just proved my conspiracy theory, which was anonymous art from our earlier question. That actually was the group, the anonymous group. They're watching us. (laughs) Even though, even though we're recording this and I haven't posted, I'll be posting it in like an hour from now. Somehow they have accessed us as we're talking live. In the same way that before you finished typing your sentence on Google, yep. it knew where you were going. This is getting really creepy. <laughs> Hold on, let me get my I'm gonna get my tinfoil hat real quick. Just to, uh, what was it? a friend of mine said that his his mom said that if you put your cell phone in the refrigerator, they can't track you. So we should do this whole thing from a refrigerated studio. Dude, that may be the most awesome piece of advice <laughs> I've ever heard. <laughs> All right, so here's the next one. Harold Serrano. Hey. You have a typo on your books page. The buy link to the first book says, but it on Amazon in paperback or ebook. <laughs> Thank you, Harold. I just fixed this now. Now it says buy. Uh, Harold, I really appreciate it. I love it when people give me feedback like that on typos. Um, so in kind, Harold, you have a typo in your question. It says, hey, you have a type in your books page. Um, so anyway, uh, tit for a tat. You're welcome, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I like Harold though. I like Harold. You know, usually, usually comments like that kind of annoy me because I'm just like, dude, do you just sit around looking for stuff like this? Do you not have anything to do? But I think Harold wants people to buy your book. And I think he was legitimately concerned. Yeah, dude, that, I like it. I, I feel yeah. I, like you can, okay, this is another one of those things where I can't, I don't have an argument for it. It's just like a feeling. When you read a question, you can just kind of like feel the tone. People say you can't convey tone with text or email or, oh, it can get confused. I've never fully bought that argument. I think it's pretty clear the tone most of the time. Like you can kind of get it on an intuitive sense. This just is like has a great tone to it. It's like, hey, there's a mess up. Uh, you know, if you want people to buy your books, make sure it doesn't say but. Like that's what comes through to me. And it's like, all right, I like that. Respect, you know? Absolutely. Um, all right. Uh, let's see here. Phil Truby, can we get rid of almost all government, including police, military, judiciary, legislature? Have all these functions been provided by the free market? Uh, yes. TK? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we, we totally can. I mean, I, I, but there are two questions in there. One is theoretical. Can we get rid of all government with the implication of the question being and still survive and be OK? I think the answer to that question is a resounding yes. The second question, though, seems to be about, you know, ha- have we have we provided all of these things in the, in the free market, you know, as alternatives? And I would say, well, there are lots of things that we either have not yet had the opportunity to create because of government monopolies in certain areas. And so we're still in the process of getting around loopholes and overcoming obstacles to create them. But we certainly have provided enough evidence that we can do it, you know, with other things. So, yeah, and I, and I yes. would actually say to that second question, um, Yes, I would actually maybe even take it a little further than you did. Ha- have these functions been provided by the market? Yes. So if you look at 
first of all, if you take all of history as a as your um, you know reference, there are periods of history for as long as uh, I mean, in medieval Iceland, there was like a three hundred year period with no government whatsoever, and everything was handled privately. And and you're like, oh well, it didn't last. Well, how do you define last? Three hundred years is longer than uh, the U.S. and its constitution has been around. So I mean, that's a that's several generations. That's a that's a pretty decent example. But I mean, there's been you know the Hanseatic League. There's been there's been places all over, uh, even the 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 West, the American West, before governments sort of formally came in. So if you go through history, there are examples of every service government has ever provided being provided without government. Um, and then you just have to do a comparative analysis. Like, is it better or worse given the relevant possibilities at the time? Like given what could have existed with government, was the non-government version better? Was it worse? I think that's a really great field of things to look at. In fact, the, um, there's a, a number of economists out of George Mason University that are really, really good at that. Pete Leeson, who I've had on the show before, um, Chris Coyne, Dan D'Amico, Peter Betke. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who do great comparative institutional analysis to say, okay, lighthouses were provided privately. Um, how did it compare to the relevant public provision at the time? Because you can't compare like private provision of courts 400 years ago to public provision today because uh, it's just not apples to apples. Um, but given given the constraints, I think those are really interesting. And I think, um, you know, from, from all the research I've done, uh, as well as just sort of the logic of it, the nonviolent, aka non-government provision um, is better. It's not perfect, but it's better. Um, and then there's the other question of today. And there's this great, great article, one of my favorite all-time articles, Phil, go check it out. It's called The Obviousness of Anarchy by uh, excellent law professor at Georgetown, um, John Hasness. And uh, anything Hasness has written is excellent. He has a handful of essays that are just all my favorites, but the obviousness of anarchy. And it's really fascinating in there. He says, you know, his, his response to how, how can you prove the the possibility and, and preferability of anarchy? And he says, very simple, look around. And really all around us, even now, the order that we see is not the result of government functions. So we have these parallel worlds. We have, you know, order in terms of rules and norms of our neighborhoods through informal rules and HOA uh, associations that are voluntary but have formal rules. You have police at the mall and all kinds of, uh, you know, security, private security at different companies. The private court system is larger than the public. The private security uh, sector is larger than the public. Um, Everywhere you look, you have private versions. I mean, all of civil law and common law is private, even though in some cases governments provide like judges and this, that, and the other thing. It precedes that and it actually is doing most of the work. So um, to give you an example, and this is an example of sort of informal uh, norms, but informal, why don't you run naked through the shopping mall? I don't think it's because there is a formal government provided law against indecent exposure. If that was overturned today, how many of my listeners would strip down and go running through the shopping mall? I don't think any of you would. Uh, whenever you ask that at a seminar or something, like one person always raises their hand and claims that they would. And I'm like, cool, prove it. I won't, I won't report you, you know, strip down right now. Um, nobody has yet, uh, thankfully, because if they did, I'd probably get fired. Um, that's when you have to be like, man, at my last lecture, I had five people. Yeah, yeah, so, okay, yeah, the yeah, numbers are going right. down. <laughs> that's right. You telling me that last time. So, so the point is, it's not the the formal legislation that's carrying the weight. 
it's a combination of, well, the shopping mall would probably kick me out and never let me back this private institution and the informal rules and norms of society. I would be shunned and mocked and the newspaper would take a picture of me and people wouldn't like me. They'd think I was weird. No one would want to hire me for a job. That's what's keeping the order is all these complex norms and formal and informal rules outside of the scope of government. And, and usually the order emerges first. In fact, almost always. I mean, everything from child labor to, uh, you know, the norms of speech and behavior and, and, you know, indecent exposure, as I just mentioned, these things get solved by the market. And only after the fact does some lawmaker come along and create a law that codifies what already exists in praxis and then takes credit in, in practice and then takes credit for it. I mean, child labor was just like plummeting as countries get wealthy, it plummets because people prefer to not have their children working, especially in factories and things. When they can't afford it, they do. When the market solves it, they don't. And then after the fact, when almost nobody is doing it, they pass a law saying it's illegal. And then everyone like 10 years later is like, but without that law, children would all be working. Well, no, they, they weren't already before the law. Like, So I think all around us, all of these functions, there is not a single function of the government that isn't currently being provided somewhere privately. And I would say uh, pretty much always better. The only thing that distinguishes government from all other institutions, organizations, businesses is the claimed monopoly on the legitimate so-called use initiation of violence. That is it. There is literally nothing else that distinguishes government from other things. Other places have elections. Other places have courts. Other institutions and organizations and businesses provide security, have every other aspect that we would consider part of government. I mean, large corporations even have bureaucrats sometimes. The only thing, the distinguishing feature is the ability at the end of the day to do what Walmart can't do, what churches can't do, what no one else can do, which is say, pay us or else. We will throw you in a cage. If you resist, we will actually literally kill you. You cannot defect. You cannot shop around. You cannot go anywhere else. If we say you do it, you do it. We're not offering you a service. We are forcing you to do something. That is the only difference. And that makes all the difference because it changes all the incentives. There is no discipline to please the customer, the consumer. There is no consumer. There are conscripts. There are people who are forced to purchase your service at whatever price you set. Now, yes, they can vote on it and all this stuff, but they can't. There's no defection. So that's the difference. That's why I don't just like irrationally hate government and think like, oh, private security is better than public because like it's it's purely an incentive. If you create a private security agency and then say, oh, by the way, you get to literally force people to pay you at gunpoint and force them to not pay anyone else for the service. Now you've created a, you've turned it into a public service and it's not the word public or the fact that it's associated with the word government that makes it screwed up. It's because the incentives just got worse because you gave the force of violence and you took away the forces of competition. All right. Didn't mean to get on my soapbox on that. TK, anything? No, man. Hey man, that was a good, that was a good soapbox. You know, th there's an interesting talk on YouTube with uh, Robert Anton Wilson and Carl Hess and it's called Subversion for Fun and Profit. And the both of them are just like, sharing a lot of these interesting, weird stories and experiences they've had over the years. But at one point in the conversation, Robert Anton Wilson says, I, he says, I'm, I'm a libertarian, but I only say that because most people don't understand what an anarchist is. And a lot of times when you, when you use the word like anarchism or anarchy, 
People assume that means the absence of order, the absence of structure. You even see this happening happening in, in uh, conversations on education and unschooling. When people hear things like play, they think that means the absence of any kind of guidance, the absence of structure. Like, like to advocate for freedom or play is to mean you can never intervene under any circumstances whatsoever. But I, I think you made the most important point that captures what it is we mean when we say we can survive without government. It doesn't mean we can survive without cooperation, collaboration, order, or structure. Clearly we can't, and clearly that's going to arise anytime you have more than one person. But it means the absence of a monopoly on violence. You, you, you have this concept where coercion is a creative force. We can produce positive goods by forcing people to do things they don't wanna do, and we can back that up, back up that threat, by, you know, by holding a monopoly on violence. We, we can create all of these things in the absence of that specific thing. Yeah. Yeah. I always like to think of the analogy of like, if you had a, a bunch of, you know, five, six, seven, eight year olds playing in a, in a room or in a house, you know, sort of, uh, living there without adult supervision and they just had to figure out a way to, to get along and share the toys and, you know, um, play. I think, it will be, you know, uncomfortable to watch from time to time, whatever, but they'll figure out eventually a way to a sort of norms and, and rules to do that. If you introduce into the equation, okay, now we have the magic stick. Whoever has the stick gets to command everyone else and everyone must obey. And this stick gives them the power to do anything that everybody else has to obey. So whoever gets that. Now the process of getting the stick, you have to get everyone else to vote for you. Uh, you have to get a third of the people to agree or something else, but the stick exists, unlimited, absolute authority. And once you have it, you get to control whatever and people must obey you. Introducing that stick to the group of kids is not going to make the situation better. It's gonna make it worse. It's gonna channel all their energies towards trying to get the stick, trying to undermine everyone else for the stick, trying to, you know, it's like the show Survivor. There's a reason they have to introduce artificial things like immunity and voting people off the island because in an actual survival situation, 20 or 30 people on an island, they're not going to do anything backstabbing and dramatic enough for TV. They're going to figure out how to cooperate to survive. So, yeah, yeah you know, I, I, that, that stick analogy is interesting, too, because the only context within which that would make for a really fun, exciting game is if it's clear to everyone at the outset that they have the choice to opt out if they believe that the person with the stick is going too far. It reminds me of something that James Cars talks about in Finite and Infinite Games. He says, he who must play cannot play. The Ooh. moment you take away my opportunity to opt out of a game, it's no longer oh, by definition i got to read game. that again. I've read it two or three times. That is one of the coolest books ever. And that is one, I must say, thank you, your... <clears throat> irrational, irresponsible, and inefficient approach to knowledge and book reading <laughs> uh, resulted in you stumbling upon that and sharing it with me. So I, <laughs> I benefit. Um, all right. So we got three final questions. I'm going to read them all at once because it's kind of funny and it's a fun segue into uh, TK's life, something that I want to talk about anyway. So <laughs> these, these questions are about me. Like, why is TK? No, no, it's oh, not. It's, not but it's something that I wanted to. So uh, I think it was last week. I posted to my blog. So, so I blog every day. Now I've actually lately in the last few weeks, I haven't posted something every day, but I've written something every day, either for my personal blog or the Praxis blog or somewhere else. But, um, but I post almost every day. So I think it was like a Saturday or something. It's almost a week ago. I was like, Oh, 
ah, I don't feel like doing a post today, but the days when I don't feel like it are the days where it's the most important. I'm just going to, I'm just going to produce one. So my good friend, Anthony Davies, who's an economist, um, he had shared on Facebook in a comments thread, this graph, and it was, it was a thread about the growth of administrators to teachers in the education sector. And he shared one, he said, the healthcare industry is similar. And it was a graph that showed the growth of administrators versus physicians. And it's just absolutely absurd. If you go to isaacmorehouse.com, you can see it and you can see the graph. Um, and so I was like, hey, that's a crazy graph. Would you mind sharing that to me? He's like, yeah, I'll email it over to you. And it has like, you know, where the source of the data comes from listed at the bottom. And Ant was like, yeah, I came across this while I was doing some research. I don't think he created it himself. I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So I wasn't, you know, I'm not like, I don't write on policy and I'm not digging into all this stuff. I actually, I don't like data-based arguments um, very much. I think it's, I think it's, uh, you know, logic always trumps uh, data. Uh, you can't interpret can't interpret the, uh, data without a theoretical lens anyway, so you better get your lens right. So anyway, so I'm like, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like, it is a really um, sad graph just to see how many administrators per physician. Now, I don't know what the right number or the right ratio is, but to see that huge jump, and it kind of goes with your visceral experience when you go to the doctor, you feel like you get like two minutes with somebody who's an actual medical provider, and then you have like, you know, before, during, and after on the phone, in person, over email, you're interacting with a million bureaucrats. It's just, it's awful. So I posted it and I was like, you know, the more regulated an industry, the more you see these kind of inefficiencies because you have more and more employees whose only purpose is to comply with the regulations and fewer and fewer who are accountable to the consumer. They're accountable to government instead of consumers. It just warps the incentives. It's really depressing. Here's this graph my friend Ant shared with me from healthcare. So I posted, it was like a throwaway post. And I'm not like, this isn't like what I believe in, what I do all day. The medical industry is not like my big focus or anything like that. Posted it, you know, turn off, shut down, goes away. Like over the next week, that thing just exploded. It was linked everywhere. It was all over. I mean, it was one of my better performing posts ever. I was getting, I think I got like 2000 views in one hour, you know, which is like, that, that's like a really good, uh, you know, if wow. I get that like two days on my blog, typically I'll get like four, 500 to a thousand views a day and then things will spike sometimes and I'll get like several thousand in a day if I have a really good article. I got like, I don't I know, I like in the last week I've gotten like, you know, thousands upon thousands. I haven't checked in a while views on that thing. It was shared on Facebook like 700 times. So and it was just this tiny throwaway post. I didn't really put any time to share this graph. Okay. So that's what the, the preface for that is. So now I get these questions uh, and I got a lot of tweeting and stuff at it. So the last three questions, uh, dear sir, I've seen the chart. This is from Harry Miller on the growth of physicians versus administrators. It seems to end in 2009 when the AHA kicks in. I'd like to know the effects of the AHA. Could the graph be extended to include that? Another question, why the huge takeoff in health administrators around 1990? Another question, is there a high quality reproducible version of the graph of the growth of physicians and administrators available somewhere else? And so I'm just like laughing. I'm like, I don't know. I, I just, I thought it was an interesting graph. I haven't even like gone to the source data myself and gone through all the research to verify it. I trust Aunt Davies who shared it with me and I thought it was fun and worth sharing. And so I did a little throwaway post about, geez, this is depressing, isn't it? And I think I just titled it like every industry gets worse when government gets involved. And I didn't, I didn't make like an extensive argument for like, you can see where the data ticks up in 1990 because of, because I'm just like, yeah, this just seems like a lot of administrators and it's a very regulated industry. Not surprising, kind of sad. That was it. But it was like, I'm getting all this attention for this post and I don't want it. I'm like, I'm like I don't mind that the post, I mean, I, I shouldn't say I don't want it. I, I did love that, you know, people are sharing it. They're interested. Hopefully it will spur discussion. I'm sure people who know more research than I do will dig into it and maybe there's interesting things you can tease out of it. 
But I was just kind of like posting something that came to mind that day and I thought it was kind of interesting. And now in this period of a week, and again, it will disappear. It's like a 15 minute, you know, bump type of thing. I don't want to overplay it. Like, oh, I'm, I'm famous for healthcare. Nothing like that. But like in this last week, I have this disproportionate number of people emailing me, tweeting, Facebook, whatever, wanting to talk about the, the data of the healthcare industry and all this stuff that I really, I'm not that interested in. And I certainly don't want that to like be my brand and what I'm known for. And here I have like for years been like fighting and like putting in, I'll spend hours writing. Like this is, this is the piece I've wanted to write about, you know, freedom and education or unschooling or praxis or entrepreneurship or getting off the conveyor belt or living free and avoiding these, you know, government institutions by innovating around them through, through voluntary, you know, entrepreneurship. (laughs) This is what I want to be known for. What does everyone want to talk about? A graph about healthcare and physicians and whatever. So I just thought it was funny and I thought it was a great segue TK, to answer the people that ask the questions, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I I don't know anything else about the question. (laughs) But TK, you wrote an article, Mm -hmm. and it started as a Facebook post about your experience, and I know you've had many, and some of them were even worse than this, in my opinion, but your experience getting pulled over and kind of harassed by cops um, for no apparent reason in LA with your wife when you were going out on a date, and you wrote Mm -hmm. about this experience and wrote about like the way that it feels you know, when you are, especially when you're a minority and when you're a black person and cops sort of give you a different treatment and you, and you didn't even, you didn't make it like some like proclamation that you were starting a crusade. You were really just telling a very personal story and Mm -hmm. that thing blew up and went nuts. And I remember you being like, I'm torn, like it's cool. And I'm glad people are sort of talking about it. And I think police abuse and stuff is a really problematic issue. In fact, we have an episode of this podcast uh, called It's Not About Race, where we talk about this stuff. But but on the other hand, like this isn't what your life mission is. This isn't what you're dedicating your life to. You're you're interested in philosophy and, and entrepreneurship and and you know education and self-empowerment. And you're not like trying to go out and be the next you know, fight police brutality warrior. That's, that's a great mission, but it's not your personal mission yet. You Mm -hmm. feel like this is what everyone wants you to become in this moment where you're getting your 15 minutes of fame and and yours blew up to a level far exceeding, uh, what I, what I did. I mean, yours was shared thousands of times by celebrities. You were getting interview requests. People were writing threatening blog posts about you. (laughs) You got sucked in. What, what did that feel like? And how do you deal with like, if the internet chooses some aspect about you, and make mm-hmm. that, at least in the short term, your defining thing. But that's not your defining thing. What do you do mm-hmm. about that? Oh, yeah, man. Well, you know, that experience was surreal. And one of the most ironic aspects of that experience is I couldn't be more apolitical. I mean, nothing bores me like politics. And, if, you know, you want to put me to sleep, just talk about your favorite political candidate. I have honestly never in my life been inspired or intimidated by any politician. When I had some people recently ask me, are you scared of Donald Trump? Are you scared if he wins president? And I said, yeah. They said, really? Why? I says, because the Celebrity Apprentice is one of my favorite shows and he's never going to do another episode if he wins. You know, um, I've never been inspired or intimidated by these guys. Um, and, you know, my, my thing has always been about if you read anything I've written or if you listen to podcasts I've been on, I'm always about focusing less on politicians and getting them to use their power on our behalf and focusing more on our personal power 
in figuring out ways to use creativity and innovation as a way to not only create a freer society for everyone else, but as a way to overcome the obstacles in our own lives. So if I'm ever known for anything, it's that. It's that. That's what I want to be known for. I never want people to remember T.K. Coleman as a guy that endorsed a political candidate, which is why, which is why you'll never find evidence of me ever endorsing a political candidate. I, I never want to be known for that. I never want to be known for a poli- as a policy guy. I want to be known, for, known as a guy who's always pointing people back to their own power and saying your power is real and it's efficacious no matter what your circumstances and conditions are. And so that article, it actually started back with an interview between you and I three years before the Facebook post. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and I spent just a small amount of time on the story and I spent most of the time talking about how my philosophy of optimism says we should deal with these kinds of things. And so, you know, when, when I wrote that thing on Facebook, I, I, I emphasized the story a little bit more. But even then, I was very careful not to do things like attack police officers. I, I, I'm pretty sure I even explicitly said that I don't think all cops are bad. And and many of my friends, <laughs> you know, kind of got on me on that. Like, yeah, some of them, they all are bad. It's like, no, nah, man, that's that's not what that, that's your agenda. That's not what mine is. And so it's interesting that, you know, I was getting calls from news reporters. Newsweek picked up the story and ran it. And everybody's wanting to talk, wanting me to talk about this from one side or another. You have some people who want to politicize my story and, and they want to use this to support whatever their political agenda is. And then you have other people who are just kind of like they were adamant about making sure my story didn't pick up more momentum because they were afraid of the political consequences that would have. And <laughs> I love it, the it, people it, who are like, everything you wrote is good. I get it. But I'm really yes. worried some people might do the wrong thing with it. You know, the, the, <laughs> the perpetually yes. stressed out that other idiots might misunderstand. You know, you better not say anything in case someone who's not as smart as me doesn't understand it. Oh, dude, I, I had a lot of, I guess, what you may call leftists or liberals or people who identify as that be afraid that I wasn't hard enough on the race aspect or the police abuse aspect because they may feel like conservatives are comfortable with this story or it may not challenge them enough. And then I had a lot of people, you know, from the right sort of, uh, you know, attack and get uncomfortable because they're afraid. Ah, dude, you brought up race and you ruined the whole story. And we already have so many problems we're dealing with on that. And now liberals are going to abuse your story. I don't have a problem with it because I get where you were coming from, but the liberals are going to abuse it. And everyone's afraid of how the other side is going to abuse it. And so what was most interesting to me is I, I wasn't really aware of how political all of that stuff was just because, again, I, 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 um, I, I, I am consciously, deliberately, you know, um, distant from that whole world. And so it was interesting to see how many people had a vested interest in it. But here, here's my thing going to, going to your question about, hey, what do you do with this? Because I got more publicity for that than anything else. And it's like, where were all you people when, when I was posting videos and articles about how you can be the predominant creative force in your life because that's what I want you to get out of the police story and everything else. Where were all of you people? Is this all you're interested in? And, you know, one of the things I learned from that experience, and this goes back to that earlier question we began with, where uh, the guy is like, hey, I can make a lot of money and get a lot of publicity if I sell to the system, but I'm not interested in perpetuating the system. I want to service these people over here, even though it's a smaller crowd and it's less financially rewarding. When I had a lot of news reporters calling me, I had people interested in hearing more about my story. I had to make a decision. You know, do I want to step into the light and be a guy who cashes in on that story? 
or do I want and, to and, and that's not and that's not purely uh like that would not be like a purely cynical like cash is in it could also be like you know this is a good mission it's a good thing to advocate it's a it's a great thing but it's mm-hmm. it's just not necessarily your thing do you want to do you want to become that just because the world in that moment is demanding it of you even though it doesn't feel like what you really want yeah absolutely absolutely i, I agree with you 100 percent I think the thing that I had to learn to do, and this is just what we encourage one of your your listeners to do with that question, is I had to step back and I had to say, what's my why? I'm not concerned with the opportunities that are now available to me as a result of having told this story, because, yeah, I can probably have some public debates, maybe make some money doing some public talks and so forth. But the question is not, you know, what can I get out of this and what are the probabilities of my success? But what's my why? What, like, what is the interior space? What is the nature of the interior space from which I wrote this story? Why is it important to me? And what does it have to do with my narrative, my mission, my philosophy of life? And that comes down to something I have said a million times before, and I'll say it a million more times before I die. And that is I'm here on this earth for one purpose, to convince as many people as possible that they have the permission and the power to be the predominant creative force in their own life. That's something that I was already doing before the story ran on Newsweek. That's something that I will continue to do after everyone has forgotten that story on Newsweek. So for me, that story was part of my narrative. It was not the defining essence of my narrative. And so I chose not to jump at every opportunity to talk with the reporter, not to jump at every opportunity to talk about it, but to only talk about it within context where it felt consistent with my narrative. So the only people that I talked to my story about, the only podcast I'll ever go on to discuss that story about are shows. Right here, folks, right here, the Isaac Morehouse podcast exclusive. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? But but yeah, like, so it's my story and I told it and and I'm not going to let anybody politicize it, you know, to support their own agenda. The story is one of many aspects of a broader narrative. And what matters is the narrative. And the story is just one illustration of that narrative. So I, I think whenever you are in a situation for better or for worse, where you're getting a lot of publicity for something that either you don't want to be known for or for something that is less important to you than other things you want to be known you're for. You're just not sure. You, you, you like, yeah, you're just you not like sure. You right. should take advantage of the opportunity, but you kind of don't feel like you, you just don't know. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm not ashamed of that story and I have no problem with being like, yeah, you're the dude that wrote that story about the cop experience. That's cool. It's part of my life. And if that's what you remember, it's all good with me. But whatever the case, when people, when people begin to put their attention on, on some one single aspect of what you do, then you have to realize in that moment that you are not bound by any kind of law that says you have to emphasize what other people emphasize. You can still men can maintain control over your brand and your reputation by how you choose to respond to it. Just because other people are making a big deal out of it doesn't mean you need to make a big deal or at least make a deal out of it in the same way that they are. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Uh, I somebody on Twitter and it was really kind. I'm not like riffing on this person. Uh, it was great. Um, but he was just like, thank you. I saw your graph about healthcare. Thank you for all your hard work. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I was like, well, I just, somebody else found the graph and I posted it. I didn't really do any work in this one, but like, but like, how about you go look at all the hard work I have done? Like just my blood, sweat, toil, and tears into building this company that embodies the philosophy of freedom and education yeah, and entrepreneurship. Yeah. Like, can, can you praise me for that, please? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, well, so hey, what, but, 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 but you know, you know what, one thing real quick, 
part of why your blog post had so much power and part of why my article had so much power is precisely because we're not known for being in the business of talking about those things all the time. Yeah. And I, and I think it's a good message for people to realize that, you know, our greatest source of power lies not in talking about things that people want to hear or doing what we think will work. Our greatest source of power lies in behaving consistently with our own narrative, with our deeper underlying why that when people listen to you and you have an impact, the reason why they will listen, the reason why you will have that impact is because you speak from a place of authenticity, not from a place of gaming the system or trying to be heard. Don't ask yourself what the world needs, but what makes you come alive? Because what the world needs are people who have come alive. Oh, one of the greatest, one of the greatest. Is there another one too? Like the world will expand to accommodate you, something to that effect that I've heard you say before. Yeah, that's me. The first one was Howard Thurman. Uh, and then there's me that says the world is big enough to accommodate your dream. And then just Got like it. with that graph, I hope that I will get the credit for both of those. Um, Dude, that's awesome. <laughs> so, so here's what I took away from this little experience. I think from now on, no matter what I'm blogging about, like Saturday at the park with the kids, I'm just going to put a graph on it. And as long as it shows like two lines and then like a dramatic inflection point somewhere, I can just anything. The, the X and Y can be anything or they can be nothing. I'll just put a graph on it. And I think people have like, they love science signaling. Like they love to signal that they like look at the data. You know, I'm, I look at the research. I look at the data. So as long as there's a graph with it, I think it will all get shared a lot more. What do you think? Oh, dude, it works. And, and I think I'm going to add to the title of every one of my blog posts, while black or in spite of the yes, police. Because so, then so it'll, it'll be like, signal like, <laughs> yeah. like I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the struggles of black people. If they're white and like, if they're black, they're like, yeah, I've got to share this. Cause like, you know, I got, I got like, part of the struggle. Oh, it's amazing. All right. So we're going to just exploit what we've learned here for maximum clicks. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> That, that that's the probability rather than the priority side of the equation. You're gonna be like, <laughs> you're gonna be like, here's a graph I came across today while black. <laughs> absolute, you'll get maximum shares. Or, or the cops try to stop me from sharing this, but this is this is what they don't want you to see. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a graph showing like points per game in the NBA. You know, so yes. relevant. Oh, I love it. TK, this has been a phenomenal episode. I love bringing Kevin Durant on the court with me to help uh, knock down these questions. Awesome times, man. Let's do it again. All right. Later. Peace.